this, uh, his commission for each individual believer and for the church. It's reflected in our uh, mission statement as a church, which uh, is printed there on the front of your worship guide every week that we, First Baptist West Albuquerque, exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you may be oftentimes uh, have found yourself in a position wondering, how do I do this better? How do I make disciples effectively? How do I share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus? How, how do I be an evangelist? And there are certainly many tools, many books, programs, uh, other sorts of things out there to equip you to do that. But certainly there's nothing better, nothing greater than, than the examples we have of faithful evangelists in God's word. Of normal people like you and like I who are sharing the gospel of Jesus boldly and with confidence everywhere we go. And so here we find in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, this second scene in Philip's life. Last week we saw first his gospel preaching, his bold and effective gospel preaching in the region of Samaria to these Samaritan people. People were half Jew, half Gentile by, uh, by, by lineage and by birth. And now this week we'll see him preaching the gospel uh, to a man from Africa, to an Ethiopian. Here we find, I think, this truth that faithful evangelists, faithful disciple makers are normal people who are, like Philip, submitted to Jesus as Lord, who are familiar with his word and who are obedient to his leading. Now, as we look at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, and Philip's uh, meeting, his evangelization of this Ethiopian eunuch, I would hope that we would, as a result of spending time in this passage this morning, that we would know that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are the only and the best tools that any believer needs to be a faithful evangelist. There are many, many good books, many good programs for helping us to be more effective in sharing our faith. But the two best things and the two things that, that we need most and really that we need only are the word of the Lord and the spirit of God. Likewise, I would pray that as a result that we would commit as a church and as individuals to praying for the spirit's leading to help us to share the gospel with those who are in our regular, our, our common spheres of influence. Let us turn our attention to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word this morning? There we read, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a eunuch, a, or there's an, Ethiop, an Ethiopian, excuse me, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, "Go over and join his chariot." So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, "Do you understand what you're reading?" And he said, "How can I unless someone guides me?" And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth. Beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the, uh, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. God bless the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. There are three sort of stages in the scene that we want to unpack and unfold this morning, and then we want to spend some time towards the end applying some principles from this passage to our own lives and to our own efforts in making disciples and evangelizing, sharing the gospel with those who don't yet know Jesus. So let's look at first at verses 26 through the first part of 27, where we see preparation for a divine appointment. God's preparation of Philip for a divine appointment. We see first in these verses the call of the Lord on Philip's life. In this scene, the work and the leading of the Lord through supernatural means and through the Holy Spirit takes precedence. Uh, the, the leadership of the Lord through the Holy Spirit is all over these verses. Here in verse 26, Philip is spoken to by an angel of the Lord, we read. In 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go south, rise and go toward the south, the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That phrase, go toward the south, could also be translated, go out at noon, for uh, certainly the sun in that part of the world points directly south at noontime. In either case, uh, the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, the road that the angel of the Lord directs Philip to travel down, uh, is a road uh, through former Philistine territory on the way to Egypt. It was a road that was seldom traveled in that day, which is why it is called a desert place. There weren't many people there. Additionally, it was largely deserted for the fact that not, not many people, they, they, didn't use this, uh, they didn't use this road often, and also there was not much uh, water there. So it's desert or deserted in two different senses, literally like a road through New Mexico, and also at the same time, uh, not a road that many people traveled on. Now here in verse 26, we'll read an angel of the Lord coming to Philip. This call of the Lord on Philip, that comes, it's a call that comes completely out of the blue. It's not something that the text tells us, that Luke tells us, that Philip was searching for, that he was praying for, that he was specifically asking the Lord for. There is, on Philip's part, no preparation or ramping up for this mission, just a word from God that commands Philip to go. Now, the call of Philip is strikingly similar, I think, to the call to Jonah, that Old Testament prophet. Where in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The call to Jonah, just as to Philip, both come unexpectedly. But where Jonah responds with disobedience and goes the opposite direction of where God is calling him, we find here in the first part of verse 27 that Philip rose and went. We see here the obedience of Philip. Quite plainly, Philip's response to the call of God is immediate and it is obedient. There's no recorded verbal response of Philip to God's call. Now, we read a lot of words that uh, Jonah gives to the Lord later on for excuses, reasons why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. But here, Philip doesn't resist the Lord or his calling at all. There's no pushback. There are no excuses. There are no requests for more information or for more training. More information about why he should travel down a seldom-traveled road away from Jerusalem. No request to the Lord to well, just give me some more time to prepare. 
Philip just hears the Lord and obeys. The preparation for this divine appointment between Philip and this Ethiopian comes all simply in the call of God on a man who will be obedient to his leading. Then in verses 20, the second half of 27 through verse 35, we see three different things, two characters and, uh, and sort of a medium in between them. We see Philip, we see the Ethiopian, and we find the scriptures as well. Let us look first at Philip. Philip, we've already discussed a little bit last week from Acts chapter 6, verse 5, is one of the seven. He's one of the first seven servants of the church in Jerusalem, tasked along with Stephen and five others whom we don't hear much about with making sure that the widows in the church in Jerusalem, both uh, uh, Hebrew Jewish widows and Greek Jewish widows, were making sure uh, uh, that they were being cared for throughout the week, giving their, uh, having been given their daily bread, being cared for in that way. We know also that Philip has already gone to Samaria. We saw that last week, where there he preaches to, uh, to a people who are not quite Jews, not quite Gentiles, and there the gospel is received gladly and with rejoicing. We saw last week the false convert, Simon, who did all of the outward uh, works that, that, that believers would do, but inwardly was not converted, was not repentant. And we saw the contrast between true and false believers there through Philip's ministry. But what about the Ethiopian? Who's this guy? Who is this Ethiopian? First, we learn that he is a eunuch. Now, the Ethiopia of the Bible, we should know, is not the Ethiopia of today, but rather it's the region south of Egypt. It's the same as the Old Testament kingdom of Cush. Ethiopia represented, uh, in Philip's day, 2,000 years ago, the edges of the known world. It was, Ethiopia, the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, again, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And so Philip here preaching to this man who comes from the ends of the earth is a significant uh, event in the course of Acts because it's already beginning the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Now, the Ethiopian is introduced as a eunuch and a court official who is over the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. Her title is called the Candace. That's not her name. It's her title. And he was, we would know, uh, know from this and from the, uh, the area that he was from, he was ethnically black, so dark-skinned. Though eunuch, that term eunuch is often synonymous with court official. Sometimes uh, one can speak of a court official as being a eunuch, though he's not in the physical sense a eunuch. This man likely was, in the physical sense, a eunuch. Since Luke distinguishes the terms, he calls him both a eunuch and a court official. He is effectively, this man, the secretary of treasury of Ethiopia. He's a man of both influence and means. He's a prominent figure in the kingdom of Ethiopia. We know also from this text that he is a God-fearer. Here we are told that the Ethiopian was returning from worshiping in Jerusalem. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was now on his way back to Ethiopia. It would appear that this man is, is what uh, uh, the, the Bible in, in several places calls a God-fearer, one who worships the God of Israel, but who has not or cannot become a full proselyte, a full convert to Judaism. Now, as a eunuch, eunuch having been at some point in his life emasculated, this man would not have been able to convert fully to Judaism or to worship in the temple. You can look at Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 for instruction there. Rather, this man, this eunuch, 
would have been allowed to attend synagogue. He would have been allowed to visit the exterior complex of the temple, but not actually go into worship himself. And so by his physical state, he was excluded from full participation in the worship of the people of Israel. And we find this man seated in his ox-drawn chariot. This isn't a war chariot carried by a horse, but by an ox. And oxen are not um, fast-moving animals. They sort of just plod along. We find him seated in his chariot, rolling along this desert road, reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, for this Ethiopian to have his own personal copy, his own personal scroll of any book of the scriptures, would have come at significant cost. There weren't Xerox machines 2,000 years ago. And so if you wanted a copy of a scroll or a copy of a part of God's word, you had to pay someone to write it down by hand. And there are a lot of words, and it takes a lot of work to copy a book of the Bible by hand, especially one the length of Isaiah. Isaiah itself is so long that in many places it's divided into two separate scrolls. And so this Ethiopian who has here a personal scroll of Isaiah would have come to him at great cost. He would have had to pay a pretty penny in order to obtain the scroll. And so it's fair to infer from this fact that the eunuch has quite a bit of expendable income and a great desire to obtain the scroll for himself. To spend that much money on a scroll... Uh, would have had to come with significant motivation for wanting to do that. There must be something about Isaiah that is meaningful to this eunuch. Philip is spoken to here in these verses a second time by the Lord, where there we read the Holy Spirit telling him, go over and join this chariot. And of course we see again, as we saw in verse uh, 27, Philip's obedience as he runs over to catch up to the carriage. This Ethiopian, he's both a eunuch In the physical sense, he's also a God-fearer, worshiping the God of Israel, having uh, worshipped in Jerusalem and now returning back to Ethiopia where he meets Philip on this road. And there we're introduced to the medium, the, the, the sort of venue for their conversation together, that being the scriptures, this scroll that the Ethiopian is reading. Let's look first at those scriptures, those verses of question that the Ethiopian is reading. Luke notes here that the man is reading, and as we've said before, from the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, the prophet, was a favored book for eunuchs for the fact that Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 5, gives great hope to eunuchs, to those who have no physical hope of of progeny, of offspring, of a lineage. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5 says this, "Let Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This this scripture, this passage, Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 5, could well be why the Ethiopian has purchased this among all of the available scrolls to have in his possession. There's good news for the eunuch in Isaiah 56. Now, the prophet Isaiah, who held out much hope for the eunuch in the plan of God, and and for those who had no hope of personal progeny, he holds out there, uh, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, the promise of an everlasting name that shall not be cut off from the earth. This is a compelling uh, prophecy. This is a compelling word of God to a person who has no hope 
of having children, no hope of grandchildren, no hope of any inheritance to give any of his offspring. Now, the passage that the eunuch is reading, however, is not Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, but rather from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. What we commonly know and understand to be part of the suffering servant uh, portion of Isaiah. And many scholars note that at this time in, uh, in, in Philip and, and the Ethiopian's day, uh, Isaiah 56, and, or Isaiah 53, excuse me, and the suffering servant passage was a highly debated portion of the prophet Isaiah. There were some who thought that Isaiah, in speaking about the suffering servant, this one who would be pierced for our transgressions, uh, 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 by whose stripes we would be healed, that sort of thing. There were some who thought Isaiah was prophesying about himself, that he was to be this suffering servant. There were others who thought that uh, the prophet Isaiah was speaking about the, the people of God, the people of Israel in a general sense, that they would be those who would suffer. And yet there were others still who, who debated and compellingly so that the prophet is not speaking about himself or about the people of Israel. He's speaking about someone else, someone who is yet to come here in Isaiah 53. Now hearing the Ethiopian read this, Philip asks this eunuch whether he understands it. Do you understand what you're reading? And at that point, the eunuch says, how can I, unless someone guides me? Clearly, the eunuch is, and, and his comments afterwards saying, is this prophecy about uh, the prophet himself or about someone else, demonstrate that the eunuch knows about the debate uh, over whom Isaiah is speaking. This divine appointment at this question, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? This divine appointment then unfolds further as the Ethiopian diplomat invites this Jewish layman into his chariot to speak with him about the scriptures. So we have the scriptures that the uh, eunuch is reading, but then we have also the scriptures that Philip preaches the gospel from. Wonderfully enough, the scriptures that Philip preaches the gospel from happen to be the very scriptures that the eunuch is reading. Okay, verse 35 says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8, told him the good news about Jesus. Now, I would hope that we would not miss this small but indispensable fact that the gospel, friends, is not a New Testament invention. The good news that God desires to save sinners, those who have rebelled against his good and perfect will, who have, who have pushed him off of the throne of their hearts, that God desires to save those people from their sins and from eternal uh, uh, death and separation from him by sending his son Jesus to pay for their sins and to be raised from the dead so that all who trust in Jesus might be saved. This gospel story, this gospel plan is not a New Testament invention. Neither is it something that can only be shared through John 3.16 or through the Romans road. The gospel of God's perfect plan to save men and women from their sin by his free grace through faith in Jesus, his own son, is a message that saturates the entire Bible. Amen. Philip knows this. Philip knows the gospel saturates the entire Bible because Philip knows his scriptures Philip can preach the gospel from Isaiah chapter 53 because he knows how from Genesis chapter 1 to the end of the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament that God is steadily and patiently working out his plan of salvation, beginning with and starting with the people of Israel in such a way that will prepare Israel and the world for the Messiah, for the promised Redeemer. Philip, the eunuch, 
and the scriptures play a central role in this passage as Philip opens the Bible, opens the scriptures to preach the gospel to this Ethiopian God-fearer. Finally, in verses 36 through 40, we see a response to the gospel that Philip preaches, that Philip preaches from Isaiah 53. That response to the gospel is, as we see in verses 36 through 38, faith in Jesus, repentance of sins, and baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. Having heard the gospel preached to him, the eunuch now takes notice of water. Surely probably would have been some sort of spring on the side of the road, a watering station on this deserted place. And seeing it, he asks Philip, hey, look, there's water. What good reason is there that I shouldn't be baptized? Now, baptism has always been a fundamental touchstone of genuine Christian conversion. Actually trusting in Jesus, turning from your sins, giving your life to him as Lord to follow him forever is depicted, that internal decision is depicted externally in the act of baptism, whereby being lowered into the water, we are identifying with Christ's death on the cross for sins and being raised out of the water, we are being identified with Christ's resurrection and the new life that he has given to us. Baptism does nothing to convert us. It does nothing to impart salvation to us, but it is a response of obedience to Christ uh, for the one who has already trusted in him for salvation. Now, at this point, you may notice in your Bibles that the verses skip from 36 to 38. Perhaps in your Bible, you actually have verse 37, but verse 37 appears in brackets or in a footnote. Verse 37 has Philip responding to the eunuch. So if we were to read verse 36 through 38, all, all in order, including 37, which does not occur in many places, we read it this way. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And verse 37 says, If you believe with all your heart, you may, says Philip. And the eunuch responding, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Continuing with verse 38, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. Now this verse, verse 37, which may not appear in your translation of the Bible, might appear in a footnote or maybe in brackets, does not appear in the earliest handwritten copies of the New Testament until about the 500s AD. It was about 500 years after, uh, more or less, uh, Luke would have written Acts. Now we have older and more reliable manuscripts that do not have verse 37. And so that's why it does not appear in most of our uh, copies of the Bible today. Likely what happened along the way, though, is people were making handwritten copies of both Luke and Acts, this two-volume set of the history of Jesus and of the apostles, is that a scribe added verse 37 as a note to those reading not to miss the necessity of faith in Jesus as the Son of God and for salvation. There's some scribe along the way who said, eh, it's possible people might skip over the fact that the eunuch actually trusted Christ and repented from his sins before he was baptized. So I'm going to make a note in the margin just to make sure that people know that so we don't draw any sort of strange doctrine out of what's happening here in Acts 8. It's really not necessary for that later scribe or later copyist to add that note because we've already seen in several places in Acts that repentance and faith always precede baptism. But somewhere, someone along the line wanted to, to clarify this point, and it's made its way into manuscripts around the year 500. Now, because we have older, better manuscripts, we recognize that that's not part of what Luke wrote originally, and so we've, uh, we have rightly taken it out and maybe just placed it in a footnote or, um, uh, or, put, or put it in brackets. All the same, though, 
even though verse 37 is a later addition and not part of Luke's original, we can be confident that Philip would not have baptized this man without a confession of faith in Jesus. Even in Acts chapter, uh, the first part of Acts chapter 8, which we saw last week, as Philip is preaching in Samaria, we read there that people believed him, they believed the message, and then were baptized. So baptism always comes after belief, not before it, and always as a result of belief uh, and a result of salvation, not in order to obtain it. Now, verse 38, then has the eunuch stopping the chariot, and he and Philip get down out of the chariot, go into the water. Now, the imagery is certainly that of baptism by full immersion in water, the same way that we practice baptism today. That that word in Greek, baptizo, which means just to baptize, means to immerse, to immerse fully, to put all the way under the water. This is the biblical practice of baptism that Philip and this Ethiopian are practicing. And as soon as the two come up out of the water, we find Philip being snatched away, being carried away by the Spirit of the Lord and apparently miraculously transported roughly 20 miles north to the city of Azotus. I can't explain what's happening here, okay? But the text seems to indicate that the Spirit just takes Philip and puts him somewhere else, okay? So that's fun. Um, I'm just, it's cool, right? I mean, so we see the work of the Lord through the Spirit of the Lord, through an angel of the Lord speaking to Philip at the beginning, uh, uh, telling him to go down this road, not telling him why, just go down this desert road. As he goes down this desert road, the Spirit speaks to him and says, hey, you see that guy in that chariot? Go catch up to it and uh, ask him what he's reading. So he goes and he does that. That leads to a conversion and a baptism. And then afterwards, the Holy Spirit says, okay, you're done here. Now we're going to Azotus, right? Just takes him. And the Ethiopian sees him no more, the text says. Philip and the eunuch never meet again. But the eunuch continues on his way to his home country of Ethiopia, rejoicing, the text says. Rejoicing. In the same way that there was much joy in Samaria when Philip preached the gospel there and it was received with faith, so also is there much joy on its way to Ethiopia in an ox-drawn chariot with a freshly baptized believer on board. Philip's disappearance, as we've said before, is now the third divine action in this event, which serves to demonstrate yet again, I think, that the timing of all of this is all of the Lord and all for the Lord's purposes. Philip doesn't get any of the glory. Philip doesn't get any credit for what happens here in Acts chapter 8. But the Lord gets a lot of credit. It's at the Lord's prompting. It's at the Lord's initiative. Now, Philip, we should credit Philip for his obedience to follow the Lord. But it's God who is setting up all of these things along the way to get the gospel to a man who is from and headed back to the ends of the earth. Verse 40, final verse, we read this. Philip found himself in Azotus, having been snatched away, carried away by the Spirit. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Caesarea is a a city in a region further north of Jerusalem where Philip would eventually settle and, and uh, live out what most think the, uh, the rest of his days. This scene closes with Philip, the evangelist, doing what he does, not just best but certainly most faithfully, preaching the gospel wherever he happens to find himself. 
The persecution in Jerusalem. Philip is scattered with many other believers, as we read in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And he finds himself in Samaria. And being in Samaria with the gospel, he preaches the gospel to Samaritans. And now uh, in Acts chapter 26, uh, being called by the Lord to go down this road from Jerusalem to Gaza, led by the Spirit to preach the gospel to this Ethiopian, he does what God has called him to do. And then being snatched away to this place called Azotus, and from Azotus all the way north to Caesarea, Philip continues preaching in every place that he goes, doing what he knows the Lord has called, to, uh, called him to do. In Acts chapter 21, verse 8, we'll see Philip one last time, just briefly. And there, Luke records him as being, uh, he calls him Philip the evangelist, who, who, as we'll see there, has four daughters who prophesy. That sounds like a busy dad, but... The spirit that so compels, the Holy Spirit of God that compels and lives in and leads and guides Philip to be a faithful gospel proclaimer doesn't just do that in Samaria and on this road to Gaza with this Ethiopian eunuch, but for the rest of his life, Philip is known as a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered evangelist whose daughters uh, seem to be doing much of the same thing. This is certainly uh, an interesting, uh, eventful, even uh, kind of entertaining in all of the right ways event in the course of Acts. This is a fun story in Acts between Philip and this Ethiopian. And certainly we can praise God for what he's done through Philip uh, in the life of this Ethiopian to bring him to faith in Christ. We can enjoy this story for what it is, but friends, we should not stop uh, to just enjoy the story for what it is. We should seek to apply it to our lives. We should uh, seek to live in light of Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And so I want to give us four kind of practical handles for how we can live in light of Acts Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. First, you, like Philip, cultivate a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, obedience to go with it. Cultivate a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is not this impersonal force. It's not this uh, Star Wars kind of uh, light side, dark side force sort of thing that that moves through the universe. The Holy Spirit is the very person of God, the third person of the Trinity that lives in the heart of every true believer, every true follower of Jesus who has turned from their sins and followed him. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, teaches us, guides us, Jesus says, as as he'll do in uh, John chapter 15 and in other places. The Holy Spirit empowers us for gospel mission. As we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be witnesses in all of these places. So cultivate a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit, like Philip did. But you might be asking the question, how do I do that? How do I learn to listen to the Holy Spirit? Well, I think a lot of our ability to hear the Holy Spirit and what he's saying to us uh, comes as a result of how we are praying and the posture which with we pray. Are we praying, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us, to show us God's will, to lead us to share the gospel with specific people? Are we praying for the Holy Spirit to make clear to us what we ought to say and when we ought to say it? Are we spending time quietly in prayer, not saying anything, but only actually listening? Oftentimes in prayer, I find myself spending the whole time talking and very little time listening to what the Lord has said. If you want to cultivate a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit, sometimes in prayer, you need to shut up and let God speak. Maybe you would 
teach yourself to pray like the uh, theologian from the early 5th century, uh, Augustine of Hippo, who prayed this way to the Holy Spirit. He said, Holy Spirit, powerful, powerful consoler, sacred bond of the Father and the Son, hope of the afflicted, descend into my heart and establish in it your loving dominion. Enkindle in my tepid soul the fire of your love so that I may be wholly subject to you. We believe that you dwell in us. You also prepare a dwelling for the Father and the Son. So desire, therefore, to come to us, consoler of abandoned souls and protector of the needy. Help the afflicted, strengthen the weak, support the wavering. Come and purify me. Let no evil desire take possession of me. You love the humble and resist the proud. So come to me, glory of the living and hope of the dying. Lead me by your grace that I may always be pleasing to you. Amen. Maybe you need to pray like Augustine for the Holy Spirit to do those things in you. Cultivate a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, like Philip, practice seeing the gospel in all of Scripture. Practice seeing the gospel in all of Scripture. Philip goes from Isaiah chapter 53 to Jesus, the risen Christ and Savior of the world. In fact, in Philip's day, there was no New Testament yet. It was still being written. And so anytime in the New Testament where you have New Testament authors speaking about the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. So where are the apostles and the early church elders and, and those that are, that are taking the gospel everywhere? Where are they preaching the gospel from? From the Old Testament. So friend, practice seeing the gospel in all of scripture. Practice seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. You may need to ask yourself, and I would ask you to ask yourself this morning, how readily are you able to take a non-believer from Genesis to Revelation from a bird's eye view to show the whole of God's wonderful redemption story? Or do you only know how to talk about the gospel from John 3.16? Do you only know how to talk about the gospel from the Romans road? Friends, the gospel saturates these 66 books that we call the Bible. We need to know where it is in and through all of that. Christian, are you able to read the genealogies of Chronicles and see the glimmer of Jesus in them? These are skills. This is a knowledge of Scripture that we work to impart to you each week in worship and through Sunday school. We want you to see Jesus in all of Scripture. We're trying to help you to see Jesus in all of Scripture. Because in all of Scripture, we have the whole story of the gospel. Most especially on Sunday nights when we gather, usually once a month, we study whole books of the Bible. Last month in April, we looked at the book of Ruth to see the connection of Ruth to Jesus and how Ruth gets us to the gospel. If you want some tools to know how to, how to get from Genesis to Jesus, go to our website, go to the sermons page and look for the Woven series and, and download, listen to the sermon on Genesis or Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all the way up to Ruth in the Old Testament or Matthew through uh, 1 Chronicles, uh, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. These, these aren't just things that we do for fun, although I do get a lot of enjoyment out of preaching Christ from all the scriptures. But guys, these are things that we are doing to equip you to see Jesus in all of scripture. This is, this is for you and for your growth as an evangelist. So practice seeing the gospel in all of scripture. This was illustrated to me wonderfully by a member of our church who a couple of weeks ago came to speak with uh, me in my office uh, about just a question uh, about Scripture. But before we ever got into it, it's a part of Scripture or a doctrine that's uh, uh, there's some, some discussion and debate about just seeking clarity in that. And as we sat together in my office, they began by saying, look, before we talk about any of these things that might be possibly divisive, let me tell you exactly what I do believe and what I do believe to be true. 
They said, I believe that God loves us, that God has created us for a relationship of worship, uh, love, and obedience to him, that we, by our own sin, have rebelled against God, that, that we have rejected his good lordship in our lives, that God, not wanting to leave us in our broken, sinful, fallen state, sent Jesus, his son, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised from the dead, so that anyone who believes in him would receive forgiveness of their sins and would enter into eternal salvation. And I said, yes, absolutely. I perfectly agree with that. Now let's talk about other things. That, uh, my heart was strangely warmed by that short, less than 60-second summary of the gospel that covers all that God has done from creation all the way up through Christ and pointing us to a response. Friend, can you, in 60 seconds or less, give a summary of the gospel from genera- uh, Genesis to Revelation like that? It warmed my heart in, be- in part because, one, I know this person is thinking about the gospel regularly. And secondly, that this person is listening to me on Sunday mornings when I preach because I say a summary of the gospel almost every single Sunday. So at least one person's listening. Praise God for that one. But are you practicing the gospel and how it relates, how it, how it connects with every part of Scripture? Are you doing that regularly in your Bible study time, in your time alone with the Lord? Are you practicing in your own head? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself daily? Are you seeing the gospel in all of Scripture? Third, So first, cultivate a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Second, practicing the gospel in all of Scripture so that from any Scripture, you might make your way to the gospel. Third of all, be an open evangelist. I put that word open in in quotes there. Be an open evangelist. First of all, have an open heart and open eyes to see those around you who are without Christ and, 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 and to see opportunities that the Holy Spirit is giving to you. The scriptures speak in many places about the heart being the seat of the, of the, of the person, really. All, all of who we are is bound up in our heart. We believe with our heart, scripture says, not with our mind, interestingly enough. But it's a way of speaking of the, the whole person. So is your whole person tuned to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Is your whole person tuned to the lostness in the world around you? Are your eyes open to see the lost people that you encounter every single day? When you go to work or you start a new job, do you immediately uh, go and look for the Christians in your place of employment so that you can have a rallying point and an encouraging place in your place of work? Or do you immediately go and look for the lost people whom God has deployed you in that place of, of business to be a gospel emissary to? How much would our evangelistic strategies change if with, uh, or our evangelistic opportunities increase if with an open heart and open eyes we walked into work every day not saying, God, show me the Christians who are here or walk into our classrooms at the university or, or in high school or middle, middle school saying, God, give me encouragement with the other Christians that are here. But what if we entered uh, our day every day wherever we go saying, God, show me the lost people who need Jesus today. I dare say you'd be overwhelmed with what God would show you you would be overwhelmed with the lostness around you. May we have open, open heart and open eyes to see those around us who are without Christ. Secondly, let us have open ears to listen and to understand the concerns, the worldview, the questions that your non-believing friends, that your non-believing family members may have. You notice that Philip starts this evangelistic conversation with this Ethiopian, not with a statement about who Jesus is, but with a question. Hey, what are you reading? That's interesting. Do you understand it? Oh, well, let's talk about that. 
Philip is ready to listen to what the Ethiopian has to say, to the questions that he has, to where he comes from and what his experience is. Friend, when you think about having conversations with lost people and talking about the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, are you prepared to hear their life story? Are you prepared to, to listen uncritically or, or in, a, in a non-judging manner to all of their past sins and maybe all the things that they hate about the God that you believe in? Are you prepared to patiently sit through those things for the love of that person and for opportunity to share Christ with them? Do you have open ears to those that you're sharing with? Have an open heart, open eyes, have open ears to listen. Third, have open scriptures to point to the word of God. Have open scriptures. Have your scriptures, your, your Bible, ready to be open to point to the word of God. Paul begins his, in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you catch that? God's word, the gospel, has power to change lives. We talk about Jesus without ever opening our Bibles with lost people. How much power of of God in his own word are we missing out on? Romans chapter 10, verses uh, uh, 13 through 17. Many of you are probably familiar with this. There where Paul writes, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then are they to call on him in whom they've never believed? How are they to believe in him uh, uh, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And in verse 17, he says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Christian, when you go to talk to your non-believing friends about what the Bible says, do you have your Bible open to go to those places? Do you know your Bible well enough? To be able to point to those places. There, there is power in the Holy Spirit inspired word of God. In these scriptures that we have. Power to save. Power to reveal truth. To souls that, that, that are hardened. That are pressing against the goodness of God. There is power to overcome those strongholds of unbelief. But only if we open the word and point people to the truth. Open your scriptures to point to what God has said. Fourth. Have open heart and eyes, open ears to listen, open scriptures to point to the powerful work of God. And fourth, have an open mouth to share the full gospel with those who will listen. Our text tells us this morning in verse 37, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Sharing the gospel, being an evangelist, means speaking. It means opening your mouth. It means being bold. It means taking risks. It means talking about Christ and the conviction that you have that he is the only way of salvation, that he's the fulfillment of every one of God's good promises in the Old Testament, that he's the only way to know God and to have your sins forgiven. It's hard to open your mouth to to exclusive truth in a world that wants to say everyone has their own truth. Even if they're separate and competing against each other, they're all equally true. It takes confidence in who God is and in this word to open your mouth to speak the scriptures, to speak the gospel, to share about Jesus. But you can't be an evangelist unless you do. Be an open evangelist. Have open heart and eyes to see the things around you that the Spirit is, is leading you to, pointing you to. Have open ears to hear from the people and to engage in relationship with the, the people that you're trying to share the gospel to. Open your scriptures to unleash the power of God to darkened souls. And fourth, open your mouth. Open your mouth 
to speak in boldness and confidence about the hope you have in Jesus. Then fourth and finally, cultivate a sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit, practicing the gospel and all of Scripture, be an open evangelist. And then, uh, most especially, note what is special about Philip. Nothing. (laughs) Philip did not walk physically with Jesus in his lifetime. Philip was never inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. Philip doesn't appear to have been an elder in the early church. And really, we hear relatively little about Philip compared with the likes of Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Silas. Philip's a normal guy, like you and me, who's been filled with the Holy Spirit, the same as every other true follower of Jesus. There's nothing special about this guy. He has the same scriptures that every believer in his day had to point point people to Jesus from. The only difference in Philip And the majority of us who fight so hard against the imperative to make disciples is that Philip was entirely willing to listen to the Lord. Philip was entirely ready to obey the Spirit's leading. Philip made no excuses. He didn't ask for more information. He didn't press back against the command of the Lord. He just said, God, if you're calling, I'm going. Philip stepped out in faith in an uncertain situation to share the good news of Jesus Christ Not knowing where God would lead him that day, he simply obeyed and did what the Lord called him to do. There's nothing special about Philip. So don't hold Philip up as some sort of hero uh, uh, whose example you can never hope to attain. Look at Philip as a fellow brother who has done and exemplified what all of us can do in the power of the Holy Spirit and must do by command of the Lord. You and I can be just as effective of evangelists and disciple makers as Philip. But to do it, listen, we don't need more training. We don't need more tools. We don't need more programs and strategies. In fact, sometimes these things become the very things that give us the greatest excuses not to be evangelists. I don't have all the best tools. I haven't gone through every possible scenario as to how this could go. I haven't found the right program, the right strategy to do this. But friends, the one true God has given to us the two very best resources that we need to make disciples like Philip. He's given us his word that explains to us all he has done to rescue sinners and all that is necessary to be justified with God. And he has given us his own spirit, the very person of God, to live in us always and to empower us to obey and to be on mission. God, help us then to love you so much and to obey your good commands so as to be obedient like Philip was. Let's pray.